so many women blamed themselves for becoming ill, breast cancer in particular, actually. So many women blame, well, they blame all of their autoimmune diseases too. Breast cancer is not, I realize, but they blamed it on themselves on their inability to handle their stress. They were ashamed because they felt that their that their illness was almost a public manifestation of their inability to manage their lives. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I speak with fascinating change makers from all over the world who inspire you to live with zest. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager. My new tagline is discovering your sweet spot, both because I love a good tennis reference and because this show is all about growing into ourselves as we age. To find out more about the podcast, hop on over to zestfulaging.com While you're there, sign up for my weekly email newsletter, The Insider, where you will get behind-the-scenes looks at our guests and other fun and quirky tidbits. And if you love the podcast, I'd be so grateful if you shared it with your friends. Our music is courtesy of Judy Banker, who was a previous guest on the show. Find out more about her at judybanker.com. And as always... Our technical director is Stephen Litweiler. Well, today's interview is only important if you are a woman and plan to see a medical professional in the future, which is most of us and and most of the audience today. Did you know that over 80% of patients lie to their doctors and women lie more than men do. So why is that so when the possible consequences are quite serious, like inaccurate diagnoses and inaccurate and inappropriate treatment? Today, we're going to speak with researcher and author Susan Salinger. She's going to talk to us about women and their complicated relationship with their doctors and the healthcare system. And she's gonna shine a light on the cultural history and gender bias in the medical community and how it affects our care and the care of our loved ones. And she's gonna offer us practical advice to help them recognize these biases and better navigate the patient-doctor relationship. Welcome to the show, Susan. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm I'm really interested in this because as we age, we often have more interaction with our healthcare providers, both for ourselves and often for our loved ones. So this is a super important topic. But I wanted to ask you first, what even prompted you to get interested in writing this book, your 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 new book, Sidelined? Well, I had an unfortunate experience many years ago where I had agreed to some surgery that I didn't need. In fact, not only did I agree to it, but I insisted it be done sooner rather than later. I had changed medications and I experienced some unfortunate side effects, which was was obvious to me that they were due to the new medication. The doctor vehemently disagreed, ran a bunch of tests and wanted to do exploratory surgery. So I got frightened, of course. I was a mother with young children. I just 
I always go to the worst case scenario. So I figured he was looking for ovarian cancer. Ah. So I insisted we do it. We did do it. Nothing was wrong. I went back to the old medication and lived healthily ever after. But I was very angry and ashamed of myself, angry at myself and ashamed. So that's that's interesting that you say that as a woman doing the thing we do instead of being angry at the doctor, you were angry at yourself. Can you help me with that? (laughs) Uh Aha, but no, good catch. And I was not angry at the doctor. And even today I'm not. He did everything in his repertoire that he thought was best. And honestly, if he'd been right, he would have saved my life. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't right. And what the, the mistake we both made, I should have gone for a second opinion or even better said, why don't I try the old meds for a week or two? I mean, I wasn't going to die the next day, you know, mm. but he was scared. He liked me and he was mm. scared for me. And so, no, I wasn't angry at him. Interesting. You're still not. Um, still not. Looking <laughs> back, when now you've done all this research, you've talked to women, you've done focus groups. What do you wish... Let me, let me, you know, I'm a psychotherapist, so you'll have to, uh, what do you wish it would have been like in the office when he said we need to do some exploratory surgery? How, how do you wish it would have gone in terms of your ability to speak clearly? You know, I'm older now. It would not happen today. Benefits and advocating for myself is one of them. But I wish it had gone where it had been more of a it was not really a dialogue. He was on his he was on his platform. And frankly, I was on mine. Mm. And I, I acquiesced because he was the professional, which is why many women acquiesce and, and don't get second opinions. Do you think um, it would have been different had it been a woman doctor? I'm thinking. I don't know if you can hear me thinking. <laughs> um, I'm not sure. It dep- I think more, I-, I would like to say yes, but I honestly am not sure. I think it depends on the doctor. And frankly, some of us are more rigid than others, and I don't know how gender-based that is. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, Now that I'm looking back, I can see a rigidity in him. And he was, as I said, he was frightened. And that, of course, you know, he, it was his job to take care of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those so are I, his I, tools, right? I mean, yeah. if if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I've had that experience as well. That's a good point. That's a very good point. But then actually, then I just put it to bed. I mean, life went on. I was raising my kids. I was working. You know how it goes. So that, But then many years later, I retired, which lasted for about 12 seconds because I had <laughs> a lot of energy. It was a really bad idea. So I went back to school and took some anthropology classes, and I ended up in medical anthropology. And for one of those classes, I did a project on women who had hysterectomies. And they too, many of them, not all, but many of them had decided to have the surgery like me, even though they weren't sure they needed it. So now I really got interested. I wanted to know how we as women make medical decisions. Was it just gynecological issues? Was that the problem? I mean, I didn't know. So I interviewed about 40 or 50 other women found some things they did in common, behaviors they had in common, did a lot of research to see if their behavior was by any chance just unique to them or not, which it wasn't. And before I knew it, I was writing a book. (laughs) 
What? Tell me about the common behaviors you have noted with with women and how we interact with our healthcare professionals. Well, the first thing I noticed, and I'll just give you a brief overview, was that as women, we put ourselves last. I mean, I can talk about whichever one of these you want to. I'm just giving you like the outline. Mm-hmm. The second thing, and I think this is the most important, one of the most important things, is that as women, we hesitate to get second opinions. Men get second opinions more than we do. So that really kind of, and if I'd gotten a second opinion, I wouldn't have had my experience. And I'm going to guess, just knowing from my own work, talking to clients who are afraid to get second opinions, something about, I don't want to hurt their feelings. Exactly. Okay. And I think I I have to go into this because it's so near and dear to my heart, but Mm -hmm. diagnoses and women don't realize patients don't realize I didn't either. A diagnosis, an accurate one is very difficult to achieve. I mean, sometimes it's obvious you go in with a broken arm, Mm -hmm. tell them your arm hurts. That's not, you know, it's obvious. But a lot of times we go in and we say we're tired. We have no appetite. We're this and those are general symptoms. And there's roughly 20 or 30,000 diseases out there. And those general symptoms can fit many, if maybe 70% of those diseases. That's the biggest complaint people go in with is being tired. Exactly, exactly. So the for the poor doctor, it could be like looking for a needle in a haystack. So mm-hmm. when we say we don't want to hurt the doctor's feelings, and that is what many of us think. And I think another thing that many of us think, in fact, a woman told me she didn't want to get a black mark against her. She didn't want to be known as a difficult patient because that would be on her record and travel with her throughout her medical career. So I think there's reasons we don't get second opinions. But when you realize how difficult a diagnosis is, you, you need to realize why you should. There's perceptual bias. You know, if you go in with the same set of symptoms and you go to a gastroenterologist, he's going to tell you or she's going to tell you it's it's from your stomach. If you go to a psychologist, they'll say it's stress, etc. So it's really good to get that extra opinion. That sounds, it just sounds really important to understand also the other side of it. And and this is a gross generalization, but people who go into the medical field are going in there to fix things. They want, it feels good right. to help people and to know what you're talking about. And for them to say, gee, you know, I'm really not sure. That's right. a hard thing. That's human nature. Absolutely. And as women, we get a lot of autoimmune diseases and those are very difficult to diagnose. Number one, for several of them, there's no definitive test. It's not like you can just take a lab test and see if you have strep bacteria in your sore throat or whatever. It's different. And the other thing is that it can take maybe five years or seven years to get a diagnosis for an autoimmune disease because the symptoms mimic each other. So you can have fibromyalgia and lupus. They have similar symptoms. And Lyme disease, in fact. Yes. We've had another, I've had a a guest talking about why Lyme disease is so maddening because people just say it's, we don't know. And there's not really great testing. Hi, everyone. You may have noticed that Zestful Aging Podcast does not run a lot of ads. That's because I'm just not willing to endorse products that I don't have 
total confidence in and that I don't use myself. So it really means something when I tell you that after I interviewed Dr. Bill Rawls on cellular health, read his books and learned about his high standards for quality control, I was sold. I placed an order for vital plant supplements immediately. I encourage you to check out both of my interviews with Dr. Bill Rawls and hop on over to vitalplan.com. If you enter Zestful 15, they will give you a 15% off of your first order. I'm really excited for you to try these products. I think you'll be very impressed. Now, back to the show. Um, did you want to continue, Susan, with some of your thoughts on why women uh, have some obstacles in getting the best treatment for themselves? Yeah, I think I, I would like to actually. And I think that another reason or one reason is, too, that there is some gender bias in the medical community. We certainly, for one thing, we don't know as much about women's bodies as we do about men's bodies. And that's because, for one thing, men's diseases get a lot more research money than women's diseases. And younger people as well, which I think I point you pointed that out in your book. Yes. But so at least not only do they get less research money, but women researchers get less money than male researchers. So if you're a woman researcher researching a woman's disease, you can be at the bottom of the funding barrel. And that's not good. The other thing that happens is for years and it's much better now. I want to be clear about that. But women were left out of clinical trials. So even though it is better now, we're still living with that history. So that's yet another reason why getting an both of those are all good reasons why getting an accurate diagnosis is, is difficult and important. You don't want to be treated for something you don't have. So I think mean, you're, you're saying that there's a lot of obstacles um, and a lot of perceptions that get in the way of us having a very direct and clear conversation about the symptoms. You know, yeah. as somebody who works a lot with eating disorders, the other piece, which I'm sure you're familiar with, if you're overweight or seen as overweight or if your BMI is high, right. they will often come out with a, a, you know, a suggestion to lose weight. And that is supposed to help all the other right. medical complaints. And That's well that documented. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. My daughter actually is a therapist as well and works. Mm -hmm. a She's had a couple of patients with eating disorders. They're hard to treat. Yes, They're they are. Treat. It's very um, difficult. Yeah, no, absolutely. I love that you brought in uh, Barbara Ehrenreich. And, oh, um, yes. you know, that's she's kind of swimming upstream. And right. I remember as someone who had breast cancer many years ago, I would see these, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, these little pink bears, these porcelain <laughs> dolls on motorcycles with the little pink, you know, uh, breast cancer survivor. And it would make me just uh, furious. I and read her article. I did indeed. Yes, and she yes. talked a lot about why pink, why dolls? <laughs> why don't, what does the man get a little doll when he has prostate cancer? 
Can you talk about, this is another piece of how we come to the conversation of illness. Um, Can you talk about, uh, reflect on her work and this idea of being a fighter and having a positive attitude? Well, you've actually pushed my buttons because I love <laughs> having a positive attitude. Um, it's, it's not at all where I come from. My, my solution to a problem is to either get therapy if you need it, research it. Don't just, there's been some research. I mean, I'm going to back myself up here so I don't sound like an idiot, but the there's been research that thinking positive, while there's no question it does help some people, I'm not going to say it doesn't. Yes. And I'm not suggesting everybody walk around, you know, looking to cynical. Yeah. yeah. But on the other hand, it's, it's a burden for many people as, as I think it was for, for Barbara Ehrenreich. It would be for me too. Um, people don't, it, it also can prevent you from doing further research. If you think to yourself, well, I'm just going to really fight this and I'm going to put everything I have in my my mental tool basket. I'm going to put everything towards it. That That's not necessarily con- all, as constructive as you could be as if you got on the Internet, did research on what kind of breast cancer you have, et cetera. Um, and there has been research that has backed that up, actually. You know, what's interesting to me, and, and this is a probably a long conversation we could have uh, some other time, but it also really puts the responsibility on the individual. And mm-hmm. so are we not talking about toxic air? Are we talking about pollution? Are we talking about, you know, uh, radiation or whatever? It's it's if you're not positive enough, then somehow you've fallen short. Absolutely. In fact, that leads me into one of the other things I found, which also surprised me, is that so many women blamed themselves for becoming ill, breast cancer in particular, actually. So many women blame, well, they blame all of their autoimmune diseases too. Breast cancer is not, I realize, but they blamed it on themselves, Mm -hmm. on their inability to handle their stress. They were ashamed because they felt that that their illness was almost a public manifestation of their inability to manage their lives. And they were embarrassed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, you'll, you'll like this as a therapist, but when I, I interviewed most of the women on a one-to-one basis, I went to their homes and we chatted over a cup of coffee. But I also did, as you said, I put together some focus groups simply because I wanted geographical diversity. But what fascinated me and was totally unexpected in the focus groups was that none, well, I won't say none, most of the women that were in these focus groups, and I did two groups of about, I don't know, maybe eight women each, none of them or most of them hadn't talked with each with anybody other than their doctor about their illness. Every one of them said they were ashamed, they were Mm -hmm. embarrassed. And what happened in the focus group was that they started talking among each other and realized that they all had similar problems, even though they had different diseases. And I had done done the different diseases purposely because I'm interested in the behavior, not the diseases. So you created a support group. I tried. <laughs> and, and I did. It wasn't conscious. I, I wish I you had been that smart, but I wasn't. <laughs> That's lovely. Do you know if any of them kept in touch after? I don't know. I actually don't know. And I've actually wondered about that. Um, mm-hmm. But I, a couple of them were going to join support groups. I don't think they had previously or they would have um, 
they would have talked to somebody else, you know, other than the, their doctor. So I assume they hadn't. And that surprised me because there's support groups all over the place. I mm-hmm. mean, I would think that, that would be very helpful. I would think so. That's really interesting. Are you seeing a ripple effect of your research and your new book um, having an effect on women and helping women understand and even physicians and medical care people? Is it getting through? I think so. I wish I could tell you that I'd sold millions of copies <laughs> and research on that, but I haven't. Uh-huh. But I have sold enough that, and I've gotten some nice comments, some really nice, thoughtful comments from people about how it's changed their attitude towards their own health. They they don't put themselves last quite as easily as they did, and they're less hesitant to ask for second opinions, and that's been um, that's very rewarding to me. Ah, you're saving a lot of heartache. I, and I hope yeah. so. I hope so. So if we could get really practical uh, for, for just a moment, when uh, uh, people in our audience go into their next doctor's appointments, what do you want them to know? And how do you want them to sort of orient themselves to their physician or healthcare yeah. worker? I'm going to answer a little more generally at first, and then I will be quite specific. Mm-hmm. One thing we haven't yet talked about is that women's conversations with their doctors are quite different from men's. Men's are Men are succinct. They go in, here's the problem, let's get it fixed. We're probably a team, Let, let's work on this. Women, and I am as guilty of this as anybody, tell the whole story. They tell the context. We tell how we feel about it. When I go to my doctor, I want him to know every little thing he can possibly know so that he really gets the entire story. And I'm all doing- the grays, oh, all the nuance. Oh, and I tell him how it's stressing me out because I can't do this because I'm tired, whatever. And I think that sometimes our physical symptoms can get buried with our emotional ones. And that's partly why some doctors will give women a psychological diagnosis rather than an organic one. And I think that that's something women need to be aware of. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't tell your doctor how you feel because you should, but just be sure that you remember that you went in there for your physical symptoms. So don't let them get swept under the rug. And incidentally, Mm -hmm. since women do get anxiety and depression more than men do, if you get that diagnosis, it doesn't necessarily mean the doctor's blowing you off. So you have to be really careful and listen and go back to your physical symptoms if that's what you need to do. Now the specific part. When you go to the doctor, the first thing you should do before you go is make a list and write it down. Don't have the list in your head, right? Prioritize your symptoms, write them down in order, because that way you'll stay on focus and you'll keep the doctor on focus and the interview will go in the direction you want it to go. Yeah. And I'm now a- you only have 10 minutes. Uh, exactly. Typically, right. Exactly. Sure. Okay. The other thing you should do is take notes if you can while you're there so that if you have any questions, you can either ask them at, at, in the interview or you can, when you get home and you review your notes, you can email or do whatever you need to do to ask the questions. 
Another thing I've learned to do, and this surprised me because about over 70 or 80% of women don't fully understand what their doctor says and leaves they, we leave the office not quite getting what we've been told. And that's partly anxiety, maybe medical jargon. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But try to repeat back what you hear the doctor say in your own words. Not only does that give you a chance to make sure that you really heard correctly, but the do- gives the doctor a chance to confirm or deny, you know, no, I didn't mean it that way. I meant it this way. So it gives both you and your doctor a chance to really make sure you're on the same page. Mm-hmm. And then another thing I do, you asked me to be specific. <laughs> I, did, I did. And this is super helpful. <laughs> Another thing I do is I always take somebody with me if I possibly can. I get so anxious, and I'm only talking about myself now. I get terribly anxious when I go to the doctor. I always think he's going to you know, tell me I'm terminal in one form or another. <laughs> so if I take my daughter or a friend or whoever with me, they, they it, four ears are better than two, and my ears don't always work when they should. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing I recommend is getting the clinical name of your disease. And the reason I do that is so I have something to go home and look it up. I, I, I at this point, particularly because of the book, I am a researcher. So the first thing I do is, you know, even my broken arm, I, I looked up the medication he gave. Uh-huh. I looked up all kinds of things. Um, uh-huh. And it helps me feel more comfortable with the diagnosis and treatment. And it also helps me be sure the doctor's on the right page. I mean, yes, my symptoms did fit this or did don't fit that. So I think it's an important thing to do. Those are great recommendations. The, I wonder if I could add one and to see what you think about this. To remember that we're consumers, that the doctor is working for us. Even yes. though we may yes. only be paying a small copay or no copay at all, they right. exist to help us. So the relationship is is not about pleasing the doctor right. and being pleasant, but having the doctor do a, a, a good job for us. And I would say in my experience, sometimes whatever you do, and even if you follow all of these clear examples, they may just not be up to the task. And there are times when you may have to say, I don't think this is working out. I'm going to choose somebody else in the practice or whatever. No, absolutely. I just had that experience with this broken arm where we waited almost two hours for the doctor. He came in, forgot to never asked our name, never apologized. I mean, the whole thing was a disaster. I'll never go back as long as I live. Uh, I don't care if I break all my arms. <laughs> I wouldn't do it. You'll you know? take care of yourself. But yeah. you're absolutely right. Not we are consumers. And some doctors are simple. You know, some people are just not as capable of relating well to others. I don't know how else to say it. I mean, there's lemons in every profession. I don't care if you're a doctor, a plumber, or a hairdresser. That's you know. exactly right. And yeah. sometimes, you know, they have their own agenda of keeping an emotional distance so they don't have to deal with their own overwhelm. Right. Um, and, you know, we're all humans, so we all have limitations. But I would say that it, in my in my experience, if you feel like you're hitting your head against the wall and they're not hearing you and Which getting it and saying, but that's the protocol, but that's the protocol. And right. you're saying, I can't do the protocol. Right. And there's no flexibility, then it may be time to move on. 
It, it, it definitely is. And that's backed up also by research. Your relationship with your doctor, depending, of course, on your disease, can be absolutely critical for your healing. If you feel your doctor likes you, if you feel your doctor understands you and listens to you, you will heal not only faster, but more easily. That's amazing. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Our minds and bodies are really connected. Yes, they Um, are. And we forget. I'm going to take, do I have time to, please go ahead. I love this kind of stuff, but let's start with our minds and our bodies are so connected and our bodies can really influence how we think. For example, researchers took two groups of students and put them in two different rooms and they gave one group of students hot coffee and the other group of students iced coffee. And then they gave each group a fictitious script of some person and wanted to know what each group thought of the person after reading the the, the bio, I guess. So the group, the group that had the hot coffee thought the person was nicer, warmer, warmer and fuzzier than the group that had the cold coffee. Isn't that amazing? It is absolutely fascinating. I love that. that. And And there's even, I'm sure you've seen the Ted talks where I think it's Amy Cuddy, right? Talks about, she's a researcher, I think at MIT. And she talks about when you're nervous and you have, you put your body in a posture of confidence your head follows that when you move your body in ways that show I'm big, I'm powerful, I'm taking up space. It really, uh, your, your brain sinks to that. Um, Absolutely. But it goes the other way too. I mean, your mind, well, here, same, same idea. They took two researchers, took two groups of students, put them in two different rooms One group wrote about a time they felt socially accepted. The second group wrote about a time they felt socially rejected. And the group that felt socially rejected judged the temperature of the room to be much colder than the group that felt socially accepted. I mean, you almost feel silly to recite. Yes. There they are. That's (laughs) yeah. Oh, those are those are so fascinating. I know. I love it. I love that stuff. So, Susan, uh, tell our audience where they can find out more about your research, your new book uh, and and, and how they follow you. Well, absolutely. Just, you know, you can go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever books are sold. Book Passage is, well, that's a big independent bookstore. It, it's there. It's everywhere. And one of the things I did omit, as, as I keep talking about, do your research. At the back of my book, there's a list of resources, which in yes. some is the most important part of the book. It tells you, I've done your research for you. Whatever you want to, I've organized it by topics. So whatever you want to look up, just go to the back of my book. It'll tell you some websites it'll, that I either have used or heard about or whatever. Yes, there's quite comprehensive. I, I was looking at yeah. that. Do you have a website that people can go to? I do. It's Susan Salinger. That's S-A-L-E-N-G-E-R dot yes. com. Okay, that's... Uh, that and you can was- order the book there. You know. Oh, perfect. Good. Well, I so appreciate you uh, helping us through this this very important uh, obstacle to our good health and the yeah, health I'm, of our loved ones. It's, it's very important. And I'm, I, I appreciate you speaking with me today. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. I love talking with you. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. 
If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. And too much stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used up. We give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long, exploratory, you know, super in-depth, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. We all need help with our anxiety. So, Being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest.